something for me Something you call love but confess You've been a messin' where you shouldn't have been a messin' And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Matt, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Happy uh, Happy Draft Day. Happy Draft Day. Oh, it comes once a year. It's. <laughs> I mean, how many days are more special than this? Well, you guys get to do this. You guys get to do this all the time because you have baseball fantasy leagues and you have football fantasy leagues and stuff, right? I mean, you must do this at least uh, two or three times a year, right? Yeah, but you know what? The Fantasy Film League is more near and dear to my heart. Oh, so. that, that, that's very sweet to hear. I feel like there's more skill in the, in the Film League as well. Is that right? I mean, as somebody, who, as, as somebody who does lots of fantasy sports, what would you say the biggest difference is in terms of strategizing? Or like what, you know, what do you use a different part of your brain for this kind of stuff? I mean, obviously it's not about stats as much as it is about buzz, right? Yeah, buzz and intuition, just your feelings, but roster construction is important. I mean, the, the the biggest, most important difference is that there's no material out there for us to you know, glom onto, to read. There's no previews. There's no rankings. We have to come up with all that shit on our own. You know, you, you sit down for fantasy football and there's a million articles, the cheat sheets that, that help you out that have the players basically ranked for you. So every draft goes a similar way when it comes to football or baseball or basketball but this is this is something we made up and no one else <laughs> makes rankings for it so uh you gotta do your own damn research I, i'm not gonna ask you to reveal your sources because you know however you go about strategizing for this for this uh season is is your business but there obviously are places out there online where critics and bloggers and even filmmakers start and obviously people who've seen things at festivals start to rank or put things in order, or put things that they feel are going to be contenders. I mean, there are there are websites that are dedicated to starting to um, handicap this stuff a little bit, right? Yeah, but I mean, the difference there is, you know, I saw Russell Wilson play last year. Like, I, I know how good he is. I know the stats he puts up, right? All these preview articles and these prediction articles are, are mostly pure speculation, right? Oftentimes, they're for movies that no one's seen yet or are still in, in production. Every year, if you look back on what the predictions were in, in May or June, you'd be obviously they'd be mostly mostly wrong <laughs> yeah no it, it's true i mean at this point last year how many people were really really had um guillermo del toro's new uh creature from the black lagoon movie on their radar yes. right famously two seasons ago you saw the writing on the wall for something like moonlight which was the sophomore feature from a guy that nobody had really heard of yeah and Mah- you know Mahershala ali wasn't a movie star yet and janelle monet wasn't a star yet and uh just on paper it, it really sounded very small mm-hmm. which which it which it is but it ended up being you know being critically big so yeah it would be interesting to see how how many times during and we can go back and look through the records because we keep records of these kinds of things how many times the best picture winner actually was drafted yeah, I mean it's it's a fun combination of of pedigree and intuition and the trailers or any materials you do have and subject matter. Like you sometimes think like, oh, this is the kind of movie that gets nominated. Then you realize that that doesn't always hold true. You know, three billboards outside of Missouri. Sort of, if you look at that in a, in a vacuum, doesn't really seem like the kind of movie that would you know take everything away. Um, the pedigree was good. The, obviously, the, the all the actors are, are, are spectacular, but there's sort of the log line. Maybe you, in the trailer, maybe wouldn't make you think that it would be the the number one you know movie. Or, or same with Shape of Water, right? Um, and then you have stuff like Martin Scorsese's Silence or Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Well, please yeah. make sure you take the uh, distance into account. <laughs> yeah, my apologies. And those were like surefire. Like everyone involved got drafted early on, and you know both those drafts. And I don't think any any of them got any nominations at any point. And so things that do look like locks 
uh, sometimes just fade into the ether. And, uh, you know, you can't rely. It also depends, like, oh, you, you think you you think this movie has a shot. Do you, are you going to go all in on and get everyone uh, involved and sort of monopolize that thing? Or are you going to spread the love? Well, that's a really good point. And that brings up a question I had for you. And, again, don't reveal anything strategically that you're not comfortable with. But are you the kind of person who really likes to go big on a specific, like, you just, you're all in, you commit to a movie like you did with Moonlight? Or are you the kind of person who likes to really go after hyphenates, you know, like writer, director, actors, because that's going to make, hopefully, for more nominations down the line? Or are you the kind of person who likes to spread yourself around the board and really, like, pick and choose from lots of different movies, from lots of different genres, and from lots of different... I don't know, prestige levels. Again, I think over the course, we've been doing this almost a decade now, right? Like, we've seen different tactics uh, win it all. You know, we've seen sort of taking everyone involved in a couple movies, taking a couple big shots. We've seen people spread it around. Um, You know, Scott has won with a sort of cynical, (laughs) heartless way of constructing his roster where yeah. you know it, it's hard to divorce yourself from your personal feelings about certain people or certain things and you think oh Sandra Bullock there's no way Sandra Bullock's gonna win for uh you know the, the what, did, what did she win for the, the blind the, side oh the blind side yes, yes, yes. Yeah. um yeah you look at that you're like no way that's not gonna happen but Scott's like no he, he sees through the uh <laughs> the pretentiousness that maybe you or you and I and Grant have sure um to get something like that so everything it just depends on on the opportunity and also, you know, my my method going into the draft is, uh, you know, don't don't uh, don't be too stubborn about anything. You know, the draft has its own its own rhythm, its own ebbs and flows, and sort of you gotta go go with it, right? You gotta, you gotta ride the wave. And if if movies are being picked off, you gotta start getting some movies. If if you feel like someone's trying to monopolize one particular movie, you don't want to let them have everyone, right? So it's. Uh, yeah, he's got to react in the moment. How about you? Like, what are your thoughts going in? Well, it's you. You come up with a strategy, and then, like you said, you have to sort of be flexible because very quickly, like when you're putting together your sort of like wish list or whatever. And this is something I've come to realize over the last couple of seasons, having no experience with fantasy sports of any kind, mm-hmm. is that like you put together your wish list and you start you start fantasizing, pardon the pun, about how great that list is going to be and how competitive you're going to be. And then the draft starts and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like everybody else has all these same wish lists, right? Like yes. nothing I'm excited, you know, just because you're excited about a group of people doesn't necessarily mean any of those people are going to be available within the next round. I mean, everybody who you think is are going to be your MVPs are just, I mean, they're going to get picked off because... They're you know they're good choices, right? And it, and it always happens one year where someone will take someone like what? Who I, I that were not that was not on my board. Then you research and there's a whole movie that you somehow missed the potential for. And you're like, oh shit, maybe I should get this person or that person. And just realize realizing that these like early prediction articles and early prediction people they're just guessing too. So it's not like that shit's gospel. Yeah, and there's also there's two different strategies, which is to be to like take the draft really, really seriously and make sure you front load yourself with as strong a team as possible or to presume that you're going to be able to ride the wave over the course of the season. Make sure you keep up to date with all of the festival goings on or whatever and yeah, then yeah. make sure you hit those waiver wires, waiver wires all the time. I feel like we have a couple people on the team like Scott and I who tend to make a lot of trades and then you have people like Mike or Grant who tend to not make as much trades and still stay really, really competitive, which means they must have just done that much more homework at the start of the season, right? Oh, we have our first steal. It's in. Oh, yeah. It just happened. You're, watch, you're watching just it happened. in real time. Real time. We got the email. What happened? Uh, Sir Serona ah, was taken. damn it. Yeah, she yeah. was She was somebody I was – she was on my short list of keepers, and I was just like, uh, I don't know. She's so young. I, it was between her and Christian Bale, and I was just like, mm, maybe it might be Bale's year. But that's a good choice. Who stole her? One of the new, one of the expansion teams. Yeah, my uh, my brother has joined the league, and he's he did that. So not a bad choice. Take it up with him. Um, how are you feeling about this uh, this crop of movies so far this year, Matt? Um, you you were mentioning you know off mic that um, it's going to be another weird season because so many of these films don't even have release dates yet, or at least you know we don't know which festival they're they're they may be hitting at this point. So. Like there's lots of really competitive looking things that may end up getting pushed to 2019. The new Brad Pitt film, the science fiction film, Az- Azra, Azra Amra, 
something yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I tried to research that, and there's it's it's unclear if they're going to give that a December release or what they're going to do with it. So. Exactly. Plus, James Gray's movies have <laughs> a somewhat yeah. complicated history with awards. So, mm-hmm. uh, on paper, it sounds like it might be intriguing, but you know, we also thought that about War Machine, right? Exactly. So, Brad Pitt's in a weird place. James Gray's in a weird place, and that movie might not even make it out before the end of the year. Yeah, and there's always movies that just just pop up at the very uh, you know in the last few months, especially once once we get like the Toronto International Film Festival lineup. That's when you really start to things start to crystallize a little bit, um, but we're still a ways off from that. So, uh, any final thoughts before uh, before tonight's draft, Matt? Uh, no, no, I'm just gonna try and uh, try and stay as like level headed through this thing as I possibly can. Not allow my emotions to to push me in one direction or the other <laughs> good good smart yeah stoicism i have a I, i've got a somewhat of a game plan um obviously that's gonna be shot to shit after a few rounds but i'm excited we have we have uh, our, our biggest league yet seven people so that's gonna change things as well we're gonna have to have a, a deeper deeper roster of potential draft picks so yeah that's fun. a lot of money on the line this year all right matt uh you have seen a couple of movies that i haven't uh, so let's discuss those yeah, first first and foremost, uh, I want to do a quick plug, uh, which is something I usually try to avoid, but it's for a company that I'm working for this summer. Uh, I'm going to spend the summer in New York, and I'm working for a company called Rooftop Films, which is uh, a four-month-long festival that happens every summer, and it's, uh, you know, it's not just a clever name. They actually host screenings on rooftops around Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. It's a festival that specializes in um, unreleased independent projects or films that have distributors but haven't been released yet. Lots of shorts, lots of things that are looking for distributors, foreign stuff. It's a really interesting. I mean, it's a legitimate festival. It just happens to take place over the course of an entire summer. Yeah, that's really cool. So, yeah, it's really fun. So anybody who is in New York or is planning on being in New York at any point this summer, look into it. Rooftopfilms.com. It's a great slate of movies. Uh, a couple that we've screened in the last couple in the last two weeks. Nancy, the new uh, Andrea Riseborough, Steve Buscemi movie, which was a big pickup out of Sundance, and Damsel, uh, the Zellner Brothers' new film with uh, Robert Pattinson and Mia Wasikowska, mm-hmm. and Hearts Beat Loud, the new um, film starring Nick Offerman and Tony Collette and Ted Danson and uh, Blythe Danner. Three, you know, very small films. All three, I believe, screened at Sundance. And I think all three screened at South by Southwest as well. If I'm not this seems like an unfair advantage for you for our film. Like. <laughs> um, I, I'll just go ahead and say I don't think any of them are going to be Oscar contenders necessarily. You get the Spirit Awards, potentially. Yeah, that's fair. And, and yeah, I do get to screen these things before, like, early because I technically have to, like, QC them and prep them for these screenings, make sure that they're playing properly and, you know, coordinate with the filmmakers and stuff. So, yes, in that regard, I do get access to them kind of early. But these three <laughs> films, even though they may not necessarily be big awards contenders, I really, really liked, particularly Damsel. And it's not just because it's a Western, although it is a Western and it's a very offbeat, goofy Western. It's just a really interesting sort of narrative experiment. And it's also a little bit of a feminist statement as well. And the less said about it, the better, because I think it's a movie that really rewards, you know, going into it with as little preconceived notions as possible. And it's basically a buddy. It's it's like a road trip movie that takes place in uh, in Oregon. Well, shot in Oregon and Utah. They never actually say where it's set, but it's set somewhere in the in the Northwest in like the 1880s. And it's weird and funny and sad and violent not at all what you'd expect from this genre. I, I can't I can't recommend it highly enough. It's one of the best movies I've seen so far this year. Even though I think it's going to really polarize audiences and it's going to weird people out. Um, and I don't think it's going to be a big hit or anything. But I, I do think it's interesting. It's an interesting film in terms of like this Robert Pattinson sance, this Pattinson's or whatever we're in the midst of. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't try to make Pattinson's. Don't, don't make it a thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not really a sance. I mean, he's been doing interesting work for a long time. Um, but it's interesting the way to, to like watch he and Kristen Stewart in terms of how they've they've managed to distance themselves from the Twilight franchise by doing very very interesting work. Yes. Um, so it's great. I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. It really really works. It's beautiful. You know, anamorphic aspect ratio. It looks like an epic western. It just happens to be this very very quirky 
offbeat story uh, from the filmmakers who made that movie, Kamiko the Treasure Hunter, a couple years ago. Oh, cool. And then Hearts Beat Loud was a film we screened a couple nights ago. Nick Offerman uh, was there uh, to introduce the film, as was the director, Brett Haley. And I'm sure you've probably seen the trailers. It's a very sweet, small, but very endearing little movie that takes place in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And uh, it's basically about a failed rock star or a wannabe rock star who attempts to try and start a band with his daughter who is going away to college. Mm-hmm. It's basically just, you know, coming of age story about this guy sort of like learning to let go, but also trying to help his daughter realize that she has this incredible musical talent that she shouldn't ignore just because she's, you know, an impetuous 18 <laughs> year old. Right? Yeah. Of course. So it's super cute. Uh, Ted Danson plays a bartender, which is fun in a meta, very very meta cheers kind of way. Um, And it also features uh, Tony Collette in a a smaller role. But as as always, Tony Collette. I can feel this professional transition coming here. Segue coming. I know it's (laughs) that much less elegant when you uh, draw attention to it. (laughs) I'm never gonna let. Yeah, I'm never gonna (laughs) let you just do it. Um, yeah, Toni Collette is wonderful. Uh, she is, you know, obviously one of our best living actresses. And even in a very, very small role like this, she really, um, she does some great work. And she has wonderful chemistry with Nick Offerman. And it's fun to see Nick Offerman in a starring role. You rarely get to see that. He's always, you know, he's always the peripheral character guy, right? Mm-hmm. So he's 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 great in this film. I, I really think it's... This is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but this is really a movie you should, like, take your parents to. No. You know, and I'm, I, I do mean that as a weird compliment. Like, it is truly a movie that everybody can get something out of. It's, it's absolutely accessible and adorable. Just, I don't know, just a lot of fun. So, Toni Collette, she's having a moment. She's having a big weekend this weekend because, in addition to Hearts Beat Loud, she also has a movie coming out that I'm sure everybody is familiar with by this point, which is called Hereditary, which was also a big splash at Sundance. We didn't screen it, we're not screening it with, um, uh, with Rooftop Films. I still think that it's significant that that movie was this big midnight screening smash at Sundance and then basically did the exact same thing at South by Southwest and now has had the biggest opening for an A24 movie ever. Yeah, it's a big old deal. People are uh, talking it up. The reviews have been fantastic. Uh, I I got a text from you this weekend, Matt, saying you better, you got to see this movie before we talk. Um, (laughs) I failed you. I failed you. Uh, for, 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 for a few reasons, uh, for one very specific reason, I didn't want to see it. I don't want to see it. Um, neither did I, I, I felt, it felt like homework. I, I did not, I had to drag myself kicking and screaming to it on Friday night. Yeah. It's beyond horrifying. Supposedly it's, it's, it's almost too much. Like it's, uh, it's not like fun horrifying, like, uh, it, right. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's supposed to rattle you to your core and be very, very dark while doing so. That's the reason I haven't gone. So give me the pitch. Tell me why I should go see it now. Yeah, none of those things are wrong. And the the thing that I was most impressed by coming out of this movie is that everything you've read about it is true. I mean, it really is kind of a game changer. It really is one of the more disturbing things you'll probably ever sit through. But it also really is sort of like the announcement of an incredible new talent in his feature directorial debut. And it also is probably the finest work of Tony Collette's career. And it also is further proof that we're entering into some kind of really important moment for this genre. You know, whether it's the the It phenomenon, the upcoming Suspiria remake, the whole thing that happened with A Quiet Place. I mean, uh-huh. horror is, is really having this moment at the moment, which I have mixed feelings about because it's never been a genre I've really responded to or had a lot of affection for. But I need to kind of force myself to get out of my comfort zone a little bit and that's why i forced myself to go see hereditary the other night because i'm like all right Mm -hmm. this is this is this is a thing this is a big deal this is something that's happening within the confines of my medium of the you know my medium of choice my art form of choice so i need to be a part of this conversation and and i'm glad i did because it's a pretty amazing film and i really think the less sort of said about it in terms of specifics the better but in a genre that i feel had become sort of curdled by the idea of like jump scares or torture porn or really like cheap kinds of like repetitive uh, gimmicks. Yeah. Which is part of the reason I bristled at it so much. Like by the time we got to the point where like the, you know, the third Annabelle sequel had that had a ridiculous trailer where you could literally set your watch by when the jump scare was going to happen. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I'm not getting anything out of this. I don't, this is not fun for me. I don't want to be a part of this. And I don't really want to go see hostile and see somebody get their, uh, you know, fingernails pulled out one at a time. Yeah. Or, or you know, <laughs> Takashi Miyake stuff with, you know, somebody getting, you know, amputated with a piano wire or whatever. Like that to me just isn't fun. Yes. Hereditary is particularly interesting because there are almost no jump scares. It's almost all kind of like psychological, much more of a Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing but also like really really deep-seated disturbing stuff that really like gets to your core i mean the way that this writer director ari aster talks about it he says you know it's basically a, a film about uh familial trauma that kind of morphs into a horror movie and the really the biggest compliment i can give it is that the best horror movies are complex allegories for deep-seated fear uh then this is a movie about being terrified that you're going to be infected or possessed by poisonous aspects of your family. Gotcha. You know, like that the movie that the movie is really at its core about how like the one thing in our life we can't run away from or escape or avoid are the things that are literally under our skin before we're even born. Like our family infects us and poisons us and we're possessed by these things that we have zero control over because they were literally there, you know, before us. Yeah, so none of this seems fun. Or <laughs> it doesn't seem like be an enjoyable movie to watch. You okay, know? All like right. is it more or less enjoyable uh, than Mother? It's more enjoyable than Mother. Okay. I think that Mother's kind of an endurance test. Okay, and I think Mother's also very pretentious. This is a movie that goes into some crazy dark places, but it's constantly fun because the the craft on screen is so staggering. Like, not just, you know, Tony Collette turning in this incredible performance, the great Gabriel Byrne, who's been quietly one of the best actors of his generation for a long time. Um, these two incredible performances by these kids. Um, they're all wonderful, but really it, it is mostly this calling card film for this director, Ari Aster, who's a, um, he's an AFI guy, I think. Cool. I want to say he's 31, 32 years old, something like that. And this is just sort of like his coming out party of saying, here I am, this is what I do, this is what I'm capable of, and this is what I can do with my first film. And it's not a film that necessarily like rests on the laurels of its style. It, it has so much going on thematically and allegorically. And, it, and it's just constantly inventive and wacky and dark and weird and fun and yeah you're gonna go to some you're gonna see some things you didn't necessarily want to see and you may see some things you wish you could unsee but ultimately there is something incredibly like cathartic by the end having gone through this experience especially if you can see it with a big crowd okay maybe i will (laughs) say it matt i i just yeah i i don't need i'm not a big like you i'm not a big horror fan i've never responded to the genre i've never sought it out you know my favorite horror movies would be stuff like like, you know, The Shining or uh, things that aren't necessarily gory or jump scary or even sort of uh, dark and cynical like like this or torture porn. It does sound like the craft displayed here is is worth it. You know, the trailer is striking, of course. Um, mm-hmm. The visuals seem like uh, they're out of this world. But I sort of assumed it would be a little pretentious uh in that way but you're saying it's it's not like i'm having a hard time sort of understanding what the tone of this movie is going to end up being or what it's like is is there anything akin to this movie that's come before that you would liken it to the movie that it really made me want to go home and watch was beetlejuice which i (laughs) it's a weird thing to say because tonally i you know (laughs) they're certainly not similar but in addition to the fact that beetlejuice just turned 30 a couple months ago (laughs) not just the haunted house element, but kind of like the idea that people are sort of like working out their internal struggles or internal lives through miniature versions of their lives. In the case of Beetlejuice, obviously Alec Baldwin's character has a miniature version of the town up in his attic. In um, Hereditary, Tony Collette is, she's basically like creating dioramas of all the, um, of all the rooms in her house or all of her experiences. And the idea that somebody needs to be able to like work out their traumas or work out their problems or work out their fears through, you know, miniature versions of their life experience okay, is really what made me think of Beetlejuice. And then also the idea that there is like, there, there needs to be some sort of medium between the living and the dead. And that there's going to be like, sort of like an open portal, 
like a communicative mm-hmm. portal between our dead loved ones and ourselves and what that's going to mean in terms of the responsibilities we take on as living people. If we're going to open up that door to mm-hmm. actually communicate, if we're so intent on communicating with the dead or we're still, we're so traumatized by the death of family members, we take it upon ourselves to find a way to communicate with them. Well, something bad may potentially come back. You know, that's a, that's a two way street. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, so that in that regard, it made me think a lot about Beetlejuice. But yeah, tonally, obviously, there's a lot of Rosemary's Baby stuff. There's a lot of Exorcist stuff for sure. These are very obvious um, kinds of references. Ari Aster has talked a lot about uh, In the Bedroom, huh. <laughs> uh, which is obviously not a horror movie, but it is a movie about familial trauma, specifically relating to the death of a family member. It's a pretty horrifying movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, it's sort of an unwitting horror movie in a lot of ways. And this movie has a sequence that is very, very similar to uh, to something that happens early in that movie. Ari Aster also points to, um, to uh, Psycho. Mm-hmm. And something that happens in that movie as a way of sort of like forcing the narrative to pivot in a way that the audience doesn't expect that kind of like compels the film to go off in a direction you weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, you know me, I'm not adverse to spoilers and I feel like we talk about spoilers all the time on this podcast and it doesn't really bother me. And, and, uh, and it's not something that I ever necessarily bristle at because I feel like if, if a detail is spoiled for you and that ruins the movie, then it must have not been a very sophisticated narrative to begin with. But I do think this is the kind of film that really, the less you know about it going in, the better. All right, all right. Say no more. Say no more. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll go see it, Matt, and we'll talk about it later. (laughs) Just as somebody who never goes to, who never feels compelled to go to these kinds of movies and almost always avoids them, to come out of this feeling so positive about the film and really wanting to recommend it to people uh, was just not something I was expecting. And honestly, I've been thinking a lot about it. I've been thinking a lot more about it this weekend than I am about the film that we're here to officially (laughs) cover and review and talk about. Another great segue, Matt. Um, Ocean's 8. Uh, Yeah, uh, (laughs) you probably don't need to think about this movie uh, all all that much. Matt, were you upset at all being such a big Soderbergh guy that this movie exists, that they've they've gone forward with the franchise? Um, Because personally... Uh, I'm not upset at all. I, I want. I'm on the record saying I want more heist movies out there. I can't have enough heist movies, and so the fact that this was using the ocean's name, taking over the ocean's mantle, I uh, I was not not upset at all. I'm glad it exists, and we'll get, we'll get to whether it justifies its existence. But Matt, were were you upset this movie uh, was put into production? No, quite the opposite. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a great idea. I was excited that it existed. I loved all the cast announcements i love the fact that soderbergh was on board as a producer i was like yes more heist movies there's you know the, I'm, I'm glad this franchise is continuing and I, I didn't want soderbergh to be directing this movie because i felt like he has a very contained trilogy that already exists and he clearly told the stories he wanted to tell now it's time to let somebody else take the reins obviously from a social standpoint the idea of having an all-female cast is great we really really need that right now um so i was completely on board and then i saw the first trailer (laughs) you didn't like the trailer all right yeah well i I, let's just say that like for the last uh three months or so i've started to get more and more worried about the direction this is taking i'd never had all that much faith that this would be a great movie um i I like the idea but i was still pretty scared about how well they'd be able to Execute it because you know you come in with all the problems uh, that you're going to have, sort of remaking or retooling a franchise, which is you want to be your own thing, but you want to still pay tribute and be similar to sort of the tone and the narratives uh, of the first films, but you don't want it to be a you know exact replica of of Ocean's Eleven, but with women, right? And so that was always a going to be a tough tightrope to walk well you got to make a decision you're, you got to make a decision like are you are you literally remaking this but with women or are you going to let it be its own thing and i fear without giving too much away about my uh, opinion of the film that this movie never commits to one or the other never commits too much to being like a direct stylistic ripoff or to being its own thing to its detriment i mean i kind of disagree with you i i think going a little bit ways like like not ha- they try to have it both ways right it's set in the oceans 11 universe um sandra bullock is sort of clunkily <laughs> shown to be danny ocean's 
sister early in the film. This character has never been mentioned before in no. the series, which is not a deal breaker, but it is maybe the first symptom of a bigger problem. I suppose, but like again, like I, I don't really care about the canon of the Ocean's movies. Like That's not important. The fact that they wanted to tie it in and had to tie it in somehow and wanted to give... Because I guarantee they wanted to leave the option open to have a Ocean's 9 and, or Ocean's 10 and bring maybe some of the guys back at some point, right? I'm okay with the, the way they, they place this you know, within the franchise. The fact that they didn't make it a remake. The fact that they didn't ignore the previous films. I think that's all well and good. And you know, even if it is a little silly that we've never heard of this character and we referentially discuss uh, the some of the Ocean's 11 crew, that's, that, that's fine by me. Um, so that that part didn't bother me at all. The heist portion of this movie was not as intricate as it has been in previous films because again, when I'm coming to a heist movie, I want the most complex heist I can uh, you know you can imagine. I want that to be sort of the crux of the film and this movie sort of derivates a little bit from that but i guess matt we always knew that the heist wasn't going to be as as good as oceans 11 right like you said going into these things we just always wanted to be the best heist that it could possibly be i think that what the 12 and 13 versions of this franchise did really really well was just kind of subvert expectation in terms of what we thought we were going to get as a sequel to something that was as universally beloved as Ocean's Eleven. Mm -hmm. Like that movie did things that really, really, that people really, really responded to that people really responded very positively to and hot take as much as I love Ocean's Eleven. I think it's slightly overrated and I think 12 and 13, particularly 12 are quite underrated. Because yeah. I think that they do interesting things with not only subverting audience expectation, but also with playing with the genre, playing with the idea of the heist, and also playing with the idea that these movies are actually deep down sort of deconstructions of the idea of star power. Con artistry or misdirection as kind of like a way of investigating star power, which is why these movies have always had such an interesting relationship with their star-studded casts. And as a result, going into eight, it's like, okay, great. Let's double down on this investigation, you know, on this kind of like meta element. Let's double down on w these movies sort of like investigating themselves. And my first question when I first heard about this thing, as excited as, excited as I was for a sequel like this, like, wait, why are we Oceans 8? Like, why are we going backwards? Now that we have a one that involves all women, we have to go backwards? Like, we can only have eight women? <laughs> like... Well, we don't trust a crew. I'm not saying we necessarily need to go forward to like 14, but I do find it to be a little bit problematic that we, we go from 11 back to 8, right? I mean, I understand they want to set up a trilogy here and do 8, 9, and 10, but like, what, where do we go from there? Do we do 11 and a half? Do we go back to 5? I don't know. The, the numerics of it never <laughs> made sense to me. I think this is some extreme nitpickery from you, Matt. Which is, <laughs> it's, it's bothered me since I heard about it, since I first heard about the project. Let me offer this. I, I, I think if we sort of reverse engineer this thing, I think they, they played it right. Everything you're talking about, about the meta celebrity culture, great. For Ocean's 8, it seems to me that all they gave a shit about, which is fine, is putting a, an enjoyable, breezy heist movie starring eight women, right? I think that was the number one goal, and this was to make money and to show that this can make money and is a viable trilogy. And Gary Ross might not have been interested in any sort of deeper subtext than women can be badass thieves, too. Going from there, when you decide to have the Met Gala as the venue for your heist, right... Uh, and, you, and you set up this, you know, the the diamonds as, as as your target. Maybe they realized just the choreography of all that wasn't going to take more than eight women. It wasn't going to take, you know, entire second and third act to pull off. Um, maybe just th that whole thing was going to be a little more modest than what you could do, um, you know, in, in if when the venue is three casinos in Vegas or the venue is is Europe or whatever. So I don't know. I I feel like they're they didn't shoot too high for this movie, and I think in some ways that's to their credit. This movie feels much smaller than the last three, which is which is weird considering the fact that it's set against the backdrop of New York and like they say the biggest you know, the most exclusive party in the entire country or whatever. Like I kept thinking that throughout the entire thing. Like, this should feel more vast. Like, this should really be more encompassing. Like, we should be having, we should have way more mm -hmm. celebrity cameos and things throughout this, right? I mean, it feels, it kind of feels cheap 
it feels small and it also feels like they didn't have enough confidence in it to kind of give it the juice that it needed to justify its own existence. Like I'll even point out something as nitpicky as casting Richard Arm, Arm, Armitage. Armitage? Armitage? I think Armitage. So. Yeah. Casting Richard Armitage as the de facto uh, antagonist. Mm hmm even though the movie doesn't really have an antagonist, slash Debbie Ocean's ex-boyfriend, is is a problem to me because as handsome and charismatic as he is or whatever, that he's not really a movie star. Yeah. And you needed somebody in that role that you could, you know, you needed somebody who was hiss-worthy in that role, right? Like the audience needs to hate that character. You know, you need to be... Mm-hmm. You need to be drawn to him to understand why she could have been drawn into this fraud scheme. And then you need to hate him as a result of what he did to her. Whereas Richard Armitage is just kind of vanilla. I was thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this movie compared to the Ghostbusters uh, reboot for obvious reasons. And like, at least that movie had, you know, Chris Hemsworth in that supporting role where you're like, okay, well, at least, you know, there's a movie star. Now I have a reason to get invested in this wacky character this Richard Armitage guy just doesn't carry enough weight. He just doesn't pull enough for me to make me give a shit about that. And then basically the entire third act of this movie kind of pivots on that revenge plot, right? Yeah, and that is my biggest complaint about this movie is the way it did pivot in the third act and cared way too much about this revenge part, not enough about the heist in general. And you know, you 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 brought up basically the the problem with with not doing that, which would be there would be no villain otherwise, right? It'd just be a a heist for the sake of of you know, Cartier would be the de facto villain, I suppose. Well, the trailers would even lead you to believe that Anne Hathaway is going to be the villain of this movie. And I don't think I'm spoiling too much by saying that the fact that there's clearly like seven main members Mm -hmm. of the group of the heist crew and the name of the movie is Ocean's Eight. It's like, okay, either somebody's going to, you know, either uh, George Clooney is going to drop from the ceiling in an 11th hour cameo and be the eighth member. Or clearly Anne Hathaway is going to have to have some sort of reversal. Mm -hmm. She's going to have to have some sort of change of heart to become the eighth member of this team right that's i just i I found that i found that quote-unquote twist to be incredibly telegraphed and unsatisfying yeah i i do think they could have sort of ixnayed the entire like revenge plot against an ex because uh, sort of anti what this movie's supposed to be about right this should be a feminist uh romp this should not have to do with this shouldn't be all about a guy right it should be about women taking stealing shit (laughs) I mean, and I know that this is tough because this is another in an ongoing episode of our ongoing series, uh, 30-something white dudes talking about, you know, feminism and racism Mm in 21st century America. But yeah, this movie is disturbingly obsessed with the like male members of this world. Like the fact that she basically comes up with this heist because of something that a a dude did to her. And, And the fact that we also drop in a cameoed member of the previous trilogy as basically kind of a deus ex machina here who basically shows up and engineers the one thing that was missing from the team in order to complete the heist. Yeah. I found myself getting kind of like I was projecting feminist offense. (laughs) Like I was getting offended by the fact that they had to reach out to this character in order to be able to complete the mission. Mm -hmm. Right. Am I, am I wrong in that, that somebody has to show up here to complete Something that these that the movie should have allowed the women in the group to complete on their own. It made me very uncomfortable. I know why they did is because they that was a second that was a different reveal that happened in the third act. You know, after the the heist itself, and so you wouldn't. They didn't figure out a way to make it one of their own characters also in on it, I suppose. However, I mean, that is a problem with the with the screenplay that that could have been rectified. And you're right, that was sort of. Why? Yeah. Why is a guy doing the, the most important thing <laughs> yes. here? Um, yeah, it kind of sucks. Obviously, there's this movie has a lot of issues for sure. I, I will say though, I uh, enjoy, enjoyed it. I enjoyed almost every second of it because I was my expectations were pretty dang low, and I think just the charisma of the leads of of the all the members of the crew sort of steal it and uh, make make it make it fun. It's just a fun movie and i like the tone that gary ross said it's not as stylized as stoderberg and it never was gonna be but i think any sort of screenplay issues you have are are sort of overwhelmed by just the attractiveness of of this crew i'm sorry you don't feel the same way 
I gotta disagree. Yeah, I, I'll let you uh, skate by and 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 get out of this one unscathed, and I'll I'll take the bullet here. Um, I think this is a pretty dreadful movie, and I really just couldn't wait for it to be over. And I just feel like as much as I like Gary Ross, and as much as I sort of supported the idea of, I guess I just like the fact that he and Soderbergh are besties. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was given his his buddy an opportunity here the way that he did with uh, Gregory Jacobs when uh, they did the Magic Mike XXL remake, or uh, sequel, rather. What they did there was they basically were working side-by-side side on set throughout that entire production. Soderbergh was shooting it, and then he actually edited it as well. And as a result, that is a great sequel that really remains in the proper tone to its uh, to the original Magic Mike, whereas this, to me, just feels like bargain basement oceans 11 knockoff yeah but if you go into it not expect like i i didn't expect to have any connection i didn't really care i wasn't trying to compare it to oceans 11 like you have to look at it as its own thing though right yeah i don't think it's successful i don't think it's successful as a standalone heist movie and i don't think it's successful as an oceans franchise sequel all right so I just don't I don't think it completes either. Like like I said, I wish it would be either its own thing or completely beholden to what's come before stylistically. And I just feel like, oh, this is somebody who's just sort of like vaguely trying to recreate something that we liked before. Whereas the the guys at the um the A V club mm-hmm. had a really interesting conversation that I was watching before we started this podcast and or Ignati Vishnevsky and AA Dowd were having this conversation and I, I pulled a couple quotes from them because I thought they were so erudite. Ignati says, uh, Oceans Eight as a it should be used as a teaching aid to reinforce for film students just how much craft goes into making a film look outwardly breezy. And I think that's such a such a good point that like I don't think we give Steven Soderbergh enough credit for how difficult it is to make a breezy, entertaining, light heist movie the way that he did with his three films, particularly the first one. I mean, it's really miraculous what what he did, you know, what he does as a stylist, mm-hmm. being able being not only being able to make these kinds of things that are very accessible and very light and very fun, but also constantly visually inventive and interesting he is such a stylist and that is oftentimes used as um as a way of disparaging you know a director's like lack of depth whereas i think soderbergh is the kind of stylist who doesn't know how to shoot a scene in a way that's not interesting you can say that there are scenes that are boring potentially but he never shoots anything in a way that's uninteresting yeah He, he he just he places his camera someplace you wouldn't expect it to be placed and it's constantly interesting Mm -hmm. and the way that he plays with color and the way that he plays with tone and the way that he and david holmes work together uh, composer david holmes work together just things that are missing from this like just from the opening scene on i was like okay they're basically recreating the opening scene from oceans 11 but the camera's in the wrong place all the time and it's not because i want him to recreate it shot by shot I just want Gary Ross to be able to have that sort of intuition the way that his buddy Soderbergh does, and he just doesn't. So maybe instead of like trying to play in that same sandbox, maybe just do his own thing and be his own filmmaker. I I mean, I agree with you. I, I don't think he was trying to be Soderberghian. Um, I think, obviously, they're taking some cues from the original movies, giving some, you know, little winks back to it. But I never felt like he was trying to replicate Soderbergh's style because he knew he would fail at it. And I guess you, what you're saying is you think he was trying to do it and he was constantly failing at it, which is uh, which is fine. I, I, I just warn about comparing any sort of scene-by-scene direction to Steven Soderbergh. It's, it's you know, the movie you're watching is probably not going to end up looking all that great. Yeah, just throughout the entire thing, it just it, to me it just felt like nothing was landing. And that's, I'll go back to, like, why the um, trailers scared me so much from very early on. I was like, oh, this all looks right. Like, this all looks like they're moving in the proper direction. But, like, none of these jokes are landing and it just doesn't, you know, the colors aren't popping the way we need them to. The style isn't there. The the panache isn't there. Like, of all the Oceans movies leading up to this one, this should be the one that's, like, the gaudiest and the craziest and the most colorful. And they should really be leaning into this, you know, the Met Gala and all the celebrities and the jewelry and just sort of, like, the ostentation, like, this, like yeah. the, the over-the-top nature of it all. is just none of that is here. It is just, again, it just all feels very kind of, like, small, way too contained. I, I, I kept needing for this thing to sort of start to bubble over with a nice amount of froth, and it just never does. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a crazy high-budget movie. 
obviously you have constraints when you're trying to film a lot of stuff at the actual Met Gala, right? Um, yeah. So you you know you get one chance at it. Um, obviously they filmed sort of all the inside scenes not that night, but I, I don't know. Like I felt the style was was fine and fit the fit the venue and. I'll tell you what, like I was not excited about this movie because I'm a well-known Sandra Bullock hater, <laughs> and uh, I actually thought she was quite good in this movie, uh, doing her best. She was she was more restrained than than she normally is, and uh, I appreciated that. Kate Blanchett is uh, Kate Blanchett. I thought she was a good sort of that was a good Clooney Pitt, uh, you know, foil. Yeah, again, I don't I don't mean to keep beating this horse, but to me, it just feels like they're trying so hard to make them comps for. Mm-hmm. You know, Danny Ocean and, and Rusty Ryan, they're like losing the ability to make some new interesting characters that we care about. Yeah. Like they're basically like playing on the fact that like, oh, these are these characters are so similar to the ones you already loved. We don't really need to develop them. Right. Like you already you already get this. We can move on to the next thing. Like, no, I, I kind of want a little backstory. You know, I want a little meat here on this bone. Like I want to know what what Debbie Ocean's good at. Um, compared to her brother. I want to know why she and Lou are, why do they care about each other? Why are they friends? What jobs have they done together? Whatever, like all that stuff, all that track that got laid in Ocean's Eleven. I, I need I need a version of that here again because these are literally new characters. You can't just presume that I'm going to be on board just because they're composites of characters we met three films ago. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like, Ocean's Eleven, thinking back on you know the first act of that movie, getting the, getting the band together, um, it's not like they have crazy depth of character there, but um, there are little you know lines here and there. You you do get a little bit of exposition. You you have a better sense of how and why they know each other, and like you said, they do have a way better sense of what they're good at and why they're good at it, and why you know you you know exactly why they're necessary uh, later on in the film. Um, I thought my favorite character in this movie though was uh, Sarah Paulson's character. Okay. Just because I like Sarah Paulson. Sort of felt like she was playing against type, and uh, I enjoyed that uh, character. I feel like I got a good uh, sense of her background. But I guarantee they they played this movie pretty conservatively because it had to be a proof point to you know get this franchise going again and get this trilogy going again. So trying to replicate some of it, giving an audience a way in, uh, while also giving it some new characteristics, uh, that's a tough line to walk when you're when you're also have have a heist movie to 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 execute so i'm going to be a a a defender of this movie and 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 again i i don't think this is a coincidence i saw this movie in the exact same venue under the exact same circumstances i saw the last ghostbusters movie that i also defended which was (laughs) the big picture opening night uh full you know buzzed up uh boozed up crowd uh you know, pretty much entirely female going nuts. So that could that could maybe have swayed my opinion of this film. For better or for worse, it really does need to be discussed, the similarities between the two films. If for no other reason, then they're basically going to make about the same amount of money um, if opening weekend is any indication. The Ghostbusters did 43, something like that, its opening weekend when it opened in July. And right now they're tracking Ocean's 8 to do 41, something like that. Uh, yeah, 41.5 it looks like. Yeah, something like that. So they're going to make bas- they're gonna have basically have the exact same opening weekend. Uh, this movie is obviously doing a little bit better critically than that one did. The amount of online, you know, trolley vitriol is certainly not nearly as, as loud this time around than it, as it was with Ghostbusters. Yeah, because uh, there were no Ocean's 11, like, play figures in the 80s and 90s that little <laughs> okay. boys played with. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Ghostbusters is much more of a sacred cow to a lot of people than the Ocean series was. Although Ocean's made it to three films, there was only two Ghostbusters movies. But anyway, I, I really think they suffer from a lot of the same problems, and unfortunately, you can't... It's very difficult to discuss them without coming off, you know, like coming off in a sort of problematic way. Obviously, you have some objective claims here that are, you know, you have nitpicks with the script and the story and the and the style, but there are some subjective things here just in terms of tone and humor and charisma that, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's hard to hard to be a hater these days. Well, the way that but the way that I defend myself is that I had no problem with a Ghostbusters reboot. I liked everybody who was involved. I had no problem that that movie was happening. I was excited for it. And I was there opening weekend. 
Mm-hmm. And I walked out of it and I was like, that movie's bad. That was a bad movie. And this is the same, I'm in the exact same boat here where like I was excited for a new Oceans movie. I like the idea that it was all women. The entire, I like everybody in this cast. I think they're all great. And um, I was like, this is going to work. I'm, I'm on board. Let's do this. And then I walked out and I was like, that was a bad movie. I'm not poisoned, you know, <laughs> like I'm not presupposed not to like these kinds of things. I'm just having a hard time connecting with this sort of like half-assed way they're going about this kind of stuff. And if And if it is... If we are in a situation where where there are, you know, evil chauvinist studio heads behind closed doors, uh, we don't need to bother too much with this script. We don't need to give them too much money. Like, it's just a movie with women, so let's not try too hard. If that's the case, then give me a picket sign. I'm happy, you know, like, I'm happy to join the cause if, if this is what we're fighting against, of, like, not giving the kinds of resources to these films that they deserve to make them decent, like to en- enhance the quality. If that's the case, then yeah, there is an enormous problem here, but I'm not bristling at these movies because of the fact that they, um, that the casts are entirely women. I just don't think there's much there, there, you know, I'm not trying to make you defend <laughs> your very valid opinion of, of, of this movie. I just, I had such low expectations going in just because I, you know, I, I think Gary Ross is fine. Uh, I don't like Sandra Bullock very much. I'm not sure we need a fourth Oceans movie. However, like, okay, it's, I love, I love heist movies. I, I want more of them. Yeah, this is a heist movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it, it is. So, you know, it so was solo technically, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, this is a, this is a very underserved genre that really deserves better. I think. Mm-hmm. So maybe one of these days, one of these days, we'll get around to it. I, I mean, I like you said, I, I saw it in a theater that was yeah probably at least seventy percent female. I didn't really feel them responding much to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear much laughter. Um, I didn't hear anybody cheering or anything like that. And then when I walked out of it, when we were all walking out to the exit together, I heard a lot of women just sort of like having very casual conversations. Like, oh, I thought that was fine. I'm surprised that um, that the reviews weren't better. Yeah, that was fine. That was fine. That was you know just like positive reactions by the audience, almost kind of uh, making excuses for it. Yeah, this sort of like casual positivity in the hallway afterwards clashed a little bit for me with the kind of indifference in the theater. Does that make sense? Like not that, you know, we need guffaws or clapping or anything to be indicative. Not not that the movie needs to necessarily be the kind of thing that's going to get a lot of loud vociferous reaction. But to me in the theater didn't feel like anybody was super duper into it. Our our theater was, was really raucous and sort of like, uh, stoked about the movie was it okay yeah there, there were even there were two women in front of us who were you know loud during the whole thing which was which was fine at the right at the right spots um but at one point uh i forget which ann hathaway scene but you know ann hathaway was was being funny <laughs> and everyone's laughing and then one of them just goes redemption because <laughs> <laughs> everyone hates ann hathaway i guess and so now she's she's back it's it's pretty inoffensive, I think, to the general audience, and I think that reaction that you heard from people is probably right, which is indifferent. Like, oh, that was fine, that was good, it was exactly. It wasn't embarrassing. Um, you know, it's a new audience. I bet a lot of people who are seeing it this weekend probably may not have even seen all three Oceans movies uh, previously. So I don't know. It, it's fine. It's 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 a little disappointing in some ways, but I wasn't expecting much. So. Uh, sounds like you were expecting or hoping for a little bit more. I was so looking forward to this, and I just was like, I just was thinking about how easy Ocean's Eleven makes it look, um, and how this movie just seems to be just kind of like sweating trying to make it work the entire time. And I'll, I'll read you one more quote that stood out to me from this weekend's reviews. Michael Phelps of the Chicago Tribune, who gave the film two out of four stars said some movies are more about parallel play than actual playground interaction and despite a screen full of terrifically skillful talents oceans eight never gets quite never quite gets its ensemble act together it's smooth and far from inept but it isn't much fun that's all you want from a certain kind of heist picture isn't it fun question mark Mm -hmm. and i think he he makes a really good point about the kind of chemistry that needs to exist amongst this ensemble in order for something like this to work yeah getting 11 dudes to have that kind of chemistry in order to get that original film to work uh, can't be overstated. I'm not saying that that it's going to be any easier necessarily to get chemistry working amongst eight women in this context, but if that if that chemistry isn't there, then I'm going to fall off pretty quickly. 
And I think a lot of that fun that he's talking about stems from uh, that chemistry existing and like caring about these people and wanting to follow them through these heist hijinks. And I and I like all them individually. I like what they're doing individually. I like Mindy Kaling's very charming over here and Aquafina is very weird and funny doing whatever she's doing. And like you said, Sarah Paulson's very sort of unexpected and she has an interesting backstory. This this um, journalist uses the uses the term um, parallel play, which is basically where children are in an environment where they're sort of like bouncing a ball by themselves, but they're not interacting with the child who's bouncing a ball right next to them. Yeah. Right. So until they actually start throwing the ball back and forth, I'm having a hard time caring about all those relationships. Yeah. I'm with you. There isn't as much teamwork seemingly, um, going on like you said it's very individuals uh doing their one specialty and not really relying on anyone else the more i think about oceans 11 the more i smile to myself about how much i love that movie and oceans 13 and i love that team um i just want the ladies to have that too you know i do as well i think they they deserve better that's the that's the entire time throughout this moment just like ah you all deserve so much better than this and I'm going to lay a lot of that at Gary Ross's feet. I mean, I just, I like the first Hunger Games movie as much as the next guy. I like Pleasantville as much as the next guy. I like Seabiscuit as much as the next guy, but... He's not, he's not smooth. He's not a sexy director. Yeah, He's not Soderbergh, yeah. I think that's that's one of the biggest problems here. So I do think he deserves a lot of the critique here because... That's the problem with most filmmakers, Matt, is that they're not Soderbergh. <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. <laughs> we could point to that as a major uh, drawback to a lot of these guys. So, I mean, I'm not adverse to this thing... Can you know? I'm not adverse to this series going forward here. Like maybe we can rebound a little bit, and it'll be interesting to see how this thing um, multiplies over the next couple of weeks. The kind of you know, like Ghostbusters just barely didn't make quite enough to justify a sequel, but uh, the first three Oceans films, even as they continue to get quote unquote worse in the eyes of of critics and audiences, I mean, 13 still made 350 million dollars. Interestingly enough. Oceans 8 coming out on June 8th, exactly 11 years to the day after Oceans 13. So if ever there was a series that was numerically obsessed, it's this one, right? Maybe they had, maybe they rushed production in the script just to hit that day. Maybe that was the problem. Just to make sure they could they'd come out on the 8th and make sure it was exactly 11 years after the last one. Speaking of sequels, uh, we got a sequel coming up next weekend that uh, not only is one of my most anticipated sequels probably ever, but might be my most anticipated film of the summer. Have you heard any buzz so far about it? They've been pretty closed mouth about it thus far, which doesn't surprise me. But if we don't start to hear some positive early reactions as of Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, I'm going to start to get a little bit concerned. You know, I, I like the trailers, and you know they're fine, but they don't—they they didn't seem special to me, right? Like I, I wasn't—my I, reaction wasn't. Uh, pure glee or joy so i i don't know maybe it's gonna i'm a little worried i'm a little worried that we haven't heard anything yet that's fair i I mean i will say this that the i don't know if pixar trailers have ever necessarily gotten me quite as excited as the films eventually do like even I, i remember like even the early like the first teasers for the first incredibles felt pretty hokey to me. And then I ended up, I mean, I feel, feel like the film really is ended up being kind of a masterpiece. Maybe it's the fact that I think, maybe it's the fact that it's one of my favorite Pixar movies and it's the one that I feel really justifies a sequel in ways that none of the others have. Absolutely, yeah. Or just my um, my faith in Brad Bird, all Tomorrowland aside. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Uh, if this one turns out to be a turkey or is, is mediocre in the level of like Finding Dory, uh, it's really going to break my heart. It's really going to ruin my summer early. I will say that because because the Incredibles to me is top three Pixar. <laughs> well, I hope we have a good talk next week, then, Matt. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye.